sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Look, people don't realize it, but by going indoors, everyone is jet lagged. From a biological standpoint, it's like they've flown to to China, Japan, back to New York and to California again, all in three days. You know, so, so we could go in two directions, but I am curious about how neuroscience can help people deal, like there's an overall layer of anxiety on society right now. It's interesting, this COVID-19 thing is the test that human evolution is facing now. We need to apply these tools. What's interesting is that a couple of weeks ago when we were told to stay in, it really challenged the very American view of like, I'm gonna fight this, we're gonna fight. You know what's really interesting? This time we're being asked to fight by suppressing behavior. And Americans, including me, we don't like that. We were like, no, we'll lean in, we'll blow it up, we'll kill it. This time, right, unlike 9-11, Navy SEALs can't save us from this one, right? This is a job for science. This is a job for medicine, and this is a job for the healthcare system. So we didn't like the idea that fight in this current test of evolution is playing on the same neurochemical mechanisms, norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, and so forth, those so-called stress systems and reward systems. But this time, the fight that we're being asked to show up with is not about spearing an animal or surviving a drought. It's about inaction. It's about our ability as human beings to suppress action. The beauty of this is that inside of all of us is we contain all the machinery to navigate this crisis and any crisis for that matter. It's almost like training an uncertainty muscle. That's right. So, so for instance, there's so much uncertainty right now, but if we build up the capacity, the way you would build up the number of push-ups you could do, if you build up the capacity to have 60 seconds or 120 seconds of gratitude at the end of the day without flitting towards you know, the anxieties of the day, then you're exercising that uncertainty muscle and you're, and you're getting dopamine, more dopamine as a result. Absolutely. We should all be congratulating ourselves that we've made it through three weeks of this social isolation. And really, if you're breathing and you're alive and you can hear this, you're winning. And you need to register that win if you hope to get through this with a sense of restoration with anything but exhaustion. Okay, hold that thought. I want to. I want to. Yeah, sure. We can get, get into that. it, however deep you like. You know. Yeah. Let me just um, before, and I know Jay's recording already, but before we get uh, deep into this, just how's it going? How are you holding up? Doing fine, thank you. Um, you know, I've been able to socially isolate easily. I live near Berkeley, California, and I my lab is obviously down in Palo Alto at Stanford. My lab is still somewhat active. Um, and especially given what we work on, stress, emotional contagion, and uh, things of that sort, um, Stanford has been supportive of us continuing our work, although with you know safe safety protocols in place. So I'm fine. My um, you know my uh, close of kin are fine. Uh, my dog is fine. I I'm genuinely concerned about the 
obviously the the overall situation, but I, I feel I'm doing well. So what about you? That's great. Yeah. No, where it's funny because, well, you know what, actually I'm going to even save this part for, for, uh, uh, our conversation because it's, it, it's related in a lot of ways. Um, the answer to that question and, and you're, you're a professor at Stanford. How long have you been at Stanford? Well, I was a goodness. Uh, so I was born at Stanford. I was raised near campus. I left to do my training. So I've been at other places. Um, you, you, you were uh, down the street in San Diego. Yeah, I was in San Diego. I was a graduate student at Berkeley and, um, I was a postdoc at Stanford. So I've been, my lab has been back at Stanford as a, uh, for the last five years, but, um, I sort of so, feel so like you I really, left. You yeah. really get out and see the world a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be honest. The one place that, that could ever, that I would ever live besides, um, the Bay area is New York. I I'm a huge New Yorkophile. The New York neuroscience community is one that I uh, have close, uh, friends in and admire very much. I, I love New York city, probably more than any place on earth, including the Bay area. It's just so happens Stanford's in Palo Alto. So, well, you know, yeah. it's funny cause I love California, but we're going to talk about New York city in a second. Cause it's related okay. to your topic, yeah. but I've got Great. professor Andrew Huberman, uh, with me from Stanford university. Is that how I pronounce your last name? Huberman? That's correct. Yeah. Huberman. Yeah. Um, and you, you're a professor of neuroscience, neurobiology. You've done a lot of amazing work in actually uh, helping blind people restore vision. And we could talk about that a little bit. You've also been doing some some uh, good studies on the effects of, uh, well, first off, in general, on coronavirus. Uh, you've been doing some studies on, but you've also been uh, working on the effects of, of stress and coronavirus, but also how to think about coronavirus from a scientific perspective. You've been, had a lot of great instant. You're one of the very few scientists releasing interesting research on Instagram. And if I could, if I could say that, and, uh, I'm happy to, to have you on the podcast to talk coronavirus, anxiety, neuroplasticity, and how the brain is changing from this, from the society's reaction to this virus. And, uh, what's, First of all, I, I actually, I do want to ask you, we, we, we spoke briefly just a second ago about New York City and you're a New Yorker. I live in New York City and, I, and I'm just asking your opinion. Like I'm getting sick of it. Like I was, I was, I've, I'm born here. I grew up around here. I've lived here for many decades. I, I was at the World Trade Center on 9-11. I lived on Wall Street during the financial crisis. Now New York City is quote unquote, the epicenter of coronavirus deaths in the world. I'm sick of being at ground zero. And I feel like, and I stayed in New York for the crisis, like 90% of my building left, but I stayed here and I feel like this city, maybe I was wrong to stay here. It's like too connected to the anxiety of all these different crises. Plus it's almost like being in the city for another crisis. Another ground zero moment is like a PTSD thing. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are. That seems much more relaxing in the Bay Area or in LA. Oh my. Uh, well, first of all, I'm a huge fan of New York City and its people. I'm not just saying that because I'm on your podcast. I, ever since I went there when I was a small child, I've sort of been obsessed with it. I think there's so many, as New Yorkers know, it's a challenging place to live uh, for many reasons, but there are just so many treasures you know, hidden yes. around the city. And when you learn what those are and, and how to adopt the mindset to find them, you, um, you live an incredibly enriched life. But I hear what you're saying, you know, 
this is another case where New York is ground zero for major challenge. I think, you know, um, I'll weave this into some neuroscience of stress and some things that um, not just my lab does, but the, the field of neuroscience as it relates to stress um, thinks about and considers. And first of all, um, and this might seem like a bit of a tangent, but it's not, you know, one of the things that makes life in a city like New York hard is by virtue of the density, you are visually bombarded with um, images at close distance all the time. You've probably had this experience of walking down one of the avenues in a really nice afternoon and you just catch the sun setting on one of these long avenues and you realize that even though your visual field has been up close, you've been in apartments and buildings and you've been seeing faces and you're on the subway and the walls. And all of a sudden you realize that you haven't looked for more than a block's worth of distance all day. And so there's a high, de- the, the high density isn't just about proximity of people. It's mm-hmm. about what, you, what one is deprived of in terms of long views and horizons. So I will agree, and we can weave back to this, but I will agree that, you know, in California, we get a lot of views of horizons, which are, I'll, I'll mention why, and the neural mechanisms are naturally relaxing and these sorts of things. But life in the Bay Area in the last few years, you know, I've been here my whole life, 44 years old, I've been here my whole life. Um, life in the Bay Area has become challenging in certain ways. Our homeless problem is severe. Our, um, you know, the cost of living here has been uh, prohibitive if, uh, for many people. Um, and the, the grind here in terms of traffic and community has been tough. New Yorkers are, are wired for uh, proximity and close quarters. Um, Californians actually, I think, if you put Californians into the environment that New Yorkers are in right now, I think uh, they wouldn't dissolve into a puddle of tears, but they would suffer uh, far more, I think, than New Yorkers. I think New Yorkers are strong because of this co- ability to constantly learn how to regulate their internal landscape because the external landscape is so hectic and it, and it uh, doesn't have these long distance views that are very good at relaxing the nervous system that we get periodically throughout the day in other places. Well, you know, a couple of comments. One is that's very interesting about how, yes, we focus and I shouldn't speak for all New Yorkers. I'll just say myself. I, I, when you said that it rang very true for me, even though I've never thought of it in that context, I focus on very short distances all the time. And so what does that mean? So you make a great point that, uh, looking at a sunrise or a sunset or looking at a long distance is almost too magnificent in New York. It's very rare. Right. And so, <laughs> uh, uh, and even like, this is very different. I bet than your lifestyle, when we plan to go, like when my wife and I plan to go to a restaurant, we don't think longer than a block or two. Like I think in other places they think, well, let's get in the car and we're going to drive across town and there's a great new steak place. We don't think that way. If something's two blocks away, that's already too far. And I've noticed that ever I moved, I mean, I lived in and around New York City all my life, but then I started working here in 1994. And I noticed that instantly that for the first time in my life, walking more than a block to eat seemed like a huge distance. Right. So the, um, and it used to be, I'll just say that, you know, it used to be in the Bay Area that commuting across the bridge, for instance, where I live in, you know, Berkeley, California to San Francisco took 30 minutes. Now that's a two hour trek. You know, coronavirus has changed that, but we're not supposed to be leaving in any case. So that's changed. So right. The, the length scale over which, um, interactions are 
uh, planned and measured and uh, carried out in New York is uh, probably more like meters to blocks, uh, whereas out here it's uh, miles to um, or or many uh, dozens or even hundreds of miles. People will drive up to Napa and things like that. But um, I, sort of I, I mean, just, in, to, just, yeah. just to say, like, I live and work in my apartment. Like, we're doing this. Obviously, we're doing this podcast. I'm doing. I'm sitting in my apartment. But even before this, I would sit in my apartment and do podcasts. It's just people would come to my apartment and we would do the podcast in a little studio I set up. I own part of a comedy club that's across the street. So that's my other workplace. I go to breakfast one block in one direction, dinner one block in the other direction or delivery. And that's my entire week every week, unless I'm specifically traveling. So I travel maybe a bit more than most, but, uh, and then there was something else you said though. Oh, I'm just, I'm just curious. Like, you know, like you mentioned, New Yorkers are stronger and, and I don't mean to make this podcast about New York. We'll, we'll switch off of this in a second, but it's, but it's related. I, I agree that we've, that I feel like I've been through a lot with all these crises and, and so have many other New Yorkers and New York city is sort of prides itself now on, on surviving these. But at the same time, I am really sick of it. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to do another crisis here. I think I'm done. All right. I, I'm always, um, we would welcome you in California. Uh, it'd be it'd be w wonderful to have you as part of the local landscape. I guess that that'll be my response. Uh, but um, but like I, but I, I feel like I, my brain has developed. Like I I'm not as anxious or stressed now as I was during the other two major situations. I think I did learn from my mistakes those times. But I'm just curious in general. Like I didn't have any tools or help to do it. It was just kind of hard earned experience and. Right. You know, so so we could go in and we'll go in two directions, but I am curious about how neuroscience can help people deal like there's an, an overall layer of anxiety on society right now. I, I do these IG lives and I ask people compared with where you are, where you were before the coronavirus, what's your anxiety level on a scale of zero to 10? And they're usually a good three or four, four points or more below where they were before on a scale of zero to 10. And, you know, what what can you do to strengthen that? And then I want to talk about in general how to stop this virus and what's coming next and, and what other results in your research, including curing blindness. Great. Oh, so, just small um, podcast. Yeah. Small podcast. So, um, using the examples that we started with, regardless of where your listeners live, uh, I just want to touch on, um, this mention of the horizon and long distance viewing, cause it's, it's very relevant to tools to mitigate stress in any environment and in any circumstances. So, uh, one of the things that my lab has worked on for many years is how vision, the visual system, impacts our internal state. We think of vision and what we look at and what we see and what we read and what we hear as um, you know, simply the content, right? That person's face, Trump's face, that information, uh, you know, uh, Fauci's, um, there's Fauci again and what he represents. And all that visual information, of course, has a powerful effect on how we feel internally. But one thing that people, I think, don't realize, but they are uh, consciously, but that they're experiencing a lot right now is the effect of how you view the visual world, uh, the effect that that has on your internal state. And when I say internal state, I mean your level of alertness and stress or your level of calmness and um, sort of ability to relax. And when I use the example of New York, being, you know, as a place where everything is at close proximity and it's rare to get long distance views unless you go out to, you know, the piers or something like that, or you're in a high rise 
on one of the top levels above other buildings. I mention that because it turns out that our, the, the human visual system in particular has two modes that it uses. One is the sort that we're using now or the sort that we would use when we would read or ride the subway where we're looking at close range and we're doing what's called a vergence eye movement as in convergence. We're bringing our eyes to a common focal point. That practice, or you're looking at your phone for instance, that practice of bringing your eyes to a, a common focal point allows for things like depth perception and other things of that sort, but it necessarily invokes a small but real increase in vigilance and attention through mechanisms that um, connect the eyes to the area of, of the brainstem, called the reticular activating system, but the name doesn't matter. When you, on the other hand, when you go out to the Cape or you go out to Long Island or you go to the piers or you go up into a high rise and you see or you catch one of those long distance views, your eyes go into what's called panoramic vision, which is when you're, uh, you can do this right now, James. So if you just kind of hold your head and eyes steady and dial out your vision, so now you could see the walls on either side of you and the ceiling and you see yourself in the environment that you're in. So without moving your head or eyes, you just are allowing your vision to dilate, your field of view to dilate out. And you're in your field of, you can see your body in that field of view. That's more or less the effect that you get when you see a horizon at a distance, or you look at a distance. That disengages this vigilance of attention, and it has a slight effect of calming the nervous system. Now, we used to do why this is, all day that? long. What, 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 is the, what do you think is the evolutionary reason for that in terms of calming uh, the system? Yeah, so if you, if you look at animals like deer, cows, goats, um, they only see in panorama. These are the, and they're very placid animals. Now, of course, they walk on all fours too, so I'm not saying that people should do that. What I'm saying, so it's correlation there, but animals that are hunters or that can, or have the capacity to work with fine tools, high acuity vision like primates, which we are, we're old world primates, have evolved this mechanism for high vigilance, high attention, high visual attention. And we don't think of it as stressful because ordinarily that is balanced with phases throughout the day where you're walking and you're just in panoramic vision or you um, are moving between meetings and you just naturally go into panoramic vision. Why do you have panoramic vision was your question. Panoramic vision, because it's mediated by neurons that are very large, they conduct electricity very fast and they have very... A high um, speed and motion perception. So when you're walking down the street, provided you're not looking at your phone, and all of a sudden you step back and a car a taxi zooms in front of you, or you close your eyelid and a bug hits your eyelid and you go, wow, I don't even remember hitting, seeing the, well, you wear glasses, but I don't even remember seeing the bug coming at me. This is a very fast system designed to detect events happening everywhere in your visual world, mostly motion. Okay. So it's designed to work at low levels of vigilance. And it's distinctly different from the mode of vision that you use when you're looking at your phone or a computer screen or you're in deep conversation with somebody. Now, the important feature here is that even before coronavirus, we would walk between meetings. Now, pre-smartphone, we would walk between meetings and we would just kind of naturally go into panoramic vision. We would talk to somebody as we walked and we would just be kind of naturally letting our vision um, dilate out, our gaze dial out. Then we might look for a sign or our subway station or something like that and we would um, re-engage in this, what I'm calling uh, focal vision or, or vergence eye movements that are more high acuity, high alertness. Two things have happened since 2010 that are very relevant now. First of all, smartphones have become so integrated into our daily life that most of the time that 
we would have gone into panoramic vision. We leave a meeting and we are immediately in a virgin's eye movement on our phone, reading text that's minuscule. There's a whole visual world inside of the device of the smartphone. Now, that's not necessarily bad. You know, I grew up here in Silicon Valley. I'm from here. I love, I love my smartphone. I use it all the time. My laboratory works on stress. We also work on vision and how these things interact, which is why I'm talking about this. One way that we stress people out in our studies is we put them into a virtual environment where they think they're in a small box. Claustrophobia isn't about the lack of oxygen in an environment. It isn't just about the proximity of people next to you in either a virtual subway or a real subway. It's about the fact that you can't see very far. In fact, if I want to make anyone feel really stressed, I put them into a small visual box and I can control for that vision effect very well because I can manipulate everything else. I can keep the, the airflow in the room the same. I can keep the amount that they can move their limbs the same. And all I do is change how far they can see. And I can immediately see in virtually everybody, even people that don't have what they would call sort of true claustrophobia, like a phobia of small places, their level of internal, what we call autonomic arousal and stress just starts to creep up, 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 up. So people are visually putting themselves in a small box all day long. And now with coronavirus, we are actually in small boxes, which are, are our homes. So my lab, and I talk about this sometimes on Instagram, but my lab has been involved in thinking about how vision beyond just what we see, but how we see and when we see those things can impact our internal states of stress. So just so your listeners um, have a couple takeaways that they can apply, like if for, you know, if in five minutes they have to run and take care of the kids, there are three things, four things really, that everybody should be doing, especially during this coronavirus episode, with their vision and how they view the world in order to keep their stress in a manage manageable place. And there are many I'm, tools. I'm, but, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna write down notes when you when you say these. Okay. So the first of all is at some point during the day, ideally multiple times a day try and catch a view at a very long distance. Now, if you're allowed to leave your home and walk, keeping the social distancing, great. If you're not allowed, you can do it through a window or try and see as far as you can. So you don't want to spend all day and night looking at short distances, at people's faces, at screens, at walls. At some point, try and catch a long view as far as you can, up at the clouds, at a horizon, that kind of thing. So that's one. It will naturally it's, it, it, yeah. for me. It's interesting because again, it's about this one block, two block radius that I've limited myself to. the 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 Hudson River is one and a half blocks from where I'm sitting right now, and I've never walked over there in the <laughs> two years I've lived here. All right. Well, before you decide to leave New York, as much as we would like you in California, uh, before you decide to leave New York, and um, try and catch uh, a horizon view um, once a day. Now you don't have to, you know fixate your eye on the horizon. Just go and without your phone, just try and let your vision dial out. Meaning- I love this. Um, yeah. So, and then if you can't do this, uh, let's say you're trapped in an apartment or um, you're in a small room. Again, you keep your head and eyes stationary and you let your eyes relax and go into this, uh, what I'm calling panoramic vision. And your eyes will naturally snap back to look at something. That's fine. But eyes and head still, and you just naturally go into this panoramic vision. It's it in it releases this vigilance temporarily and it's totally under your control. This is conscious and, and, control. And can I ask, when you see this yeah. panoramic view, is it like different neurochemicals are released? So, so for instance, when I am looking for a, a subway stop and I see it, 
you know, so I'm, I'm in local, you know, small vision instead of mm -hmm. long vision. Um, but maybe, um, serotonin or dopamine's released because I see a goal and I'm, I'm meeting that goal. And so I feel satisfied. Like what's, what's happening neurochemically between looking at a horizon and looking at small distances to achieve these kind of small local goals. You ask, um, the, uh, key question. So I, I'll return to the other three items that, um, that I think people can do to control their stress in a moment. But, um, so when you are looking at a specific location in space, especially if it's goal oriented, like you're trying to get to there or you're thinking about that, and this could be working down a word, you know, typing a document or emails and getting to the end of email. It doesn't have to be a goal out in the street or in visual space of what, where you're ambulating, where you're moving. That focus of attention involves the release of several neurochemicals, but the two main ones that are involved in attention and vigilance are acetylcholine and norepinephrine, also called noradrenaline. Don't ask me why it's called two things, but it is the same thing. Same chemical is called two different things. When you go into panoramic vision, you release, uh, you sort of halt the secretion of norepinephrine in the brainstem transiently. And that norepinephrine is involved in generating vigilance. It actually is involved in the stress response. It creates a sense of agitation. Remember, stress is about getting the body and mind in a biased state, and the bias is toward movement. The reason stress feels agitating is because it was designed to move you, physically move you. Do, do, and, and I'm sorry I always interrupt and, and ask these questions. But no, please. Do, do you think that... Um, and, and I want to continue, then we've got two steps now to go. I want to get back to the neurochemicals and then the next two items on your list of three. But do you think kind of the, the fact that society has evolved so much faster than the species and the brain that now, as you mentioned, we're, we're focused almost hyper-local now with, with smartphones and, and whatever, do you think that it creates this artificial low level of simmering stress that? is it overloads the system because I imagine 70,000 years ago, stress came in bursts. If you were like, had to jump to catch food or, or, or escape or whatever. And now we just have this low level simmering stress because we're always in these short distances and we're always hypervigilant. Yes. Uh, th the answer is yes. Um, and I'm in discussions, early discussions with some of the companies that design technologies for computer and phone interfaces the way that we interact with our smartphones in particular, but screens in general, is, pro is creating some serious problems. First of all, it's bringing our visual field into a small box, which now your listeners know is, is a low but relevant form of vigilance and stress all day long. Sort of like spending nickels on the nickel slots. You're not going to go broke in five minutes. But given that you wake up with a certain amount of attention um, that, you can, that your brain can allocate to things... You we're spending that out more quickly, and we are sort of in um, stress deficit by the end of the day. Uh, by and what happens? Of, yeah. What happens with that? Well, ultimately, okay, so several things happen. Ultimately, that stress deficit, and I don't talk about, I, I use phrases like stress deficit or the calming, or, you know, we can get into the neural mechanisms, but what you're really talking about is excessive norepinephrine, also adre adrenaline release into the, into the nervous system. And so the nervous system fatigues, right? Just like your eyes will get tired after focusing for a long time, you know, about 40 to 50% of your total metabolic needs, your caloric needs come from the use of your forebrain. The rest of your brain that keeps your heart beating and your breathing going, it, you know, it runs at a basal level, we call these sort of housekeeping functions. 
um, very efficiently, meaning it doesn't require much energy. Thinking is hard. Visual focus and the ability to dilate or constrict your vision to a specific location in space and analyze what's happening uh, at, in that particular location in visual or auditory space, listening to something specific in a particular location, are extremely demanding for the nervous system. And the, the way that technologies have been introduced into our lives, we are able to do it. I mean, it's a testament to how well the, the human brain can adapt. In the last 10 years, really, we've adopted these technologies and they're seamless with our, with our daily life. But the, the nervous system's capacity to, to deal with heightened levels of noradrenaline all day long, enhanced focal vision all day long, and lack of things like panoramic vision all day long, as well as something else which will relate to my point three, um, those are, you know, the neurochemical systems haven't evolved new receptors or uh, we're, not we're not able to simply uh, clear out that noradrenaline more quickly than we were in the 1950s or the 1970s, let alone in the, you know, in the 1930s or, or earlier, hundreds of years ago. So there's a lag um, between the time in which a technology shows up, obviously, and the extent to which the nervous system can regulate its use of that technology. Meanwhile, the, the unregulated use of that technology is, is pushing our autonomic nervous system, the, the aspect of our nervous system that controls things like stress and relaxation to its max and even beyond its max. I, I can, let me give an, ex, I'll, I'll sort of weave into points two and three as they relate to your question, because the neurochemicals are essential. I want to come back to the goal setting. Maybe we can put that under plasticity when we get to that, because yeah. when, when you set a goal, especially a visual goal, and you move toward it and you complete it, there's, there is the release of other neurochemicals, such as dopamine, that offset or suppress the negative effects of adrenaline and allow you to continue. This is fundamental to how we evolved all tools and practices, not just um, our ability to move through space and find subways and things like that. But so it's an important, you raised it just several times now, James, you've raised the key questions. Um, I just want to make sure that I nest them in the conversation in a way that the uh, we can go into full depth with them. So yeah, yeah, no, that's great. So, so your your point about dopamine though is interesting. So it's basically if if I if I'm seventy thousand years ago, I'm a caveman or whatever you call it, and I see food that I can bring back to the tribe, I'm gonna have dopamine released because it's gonna incre increase my status with the tribe, and that's how we sort of survived this tribal animals. And so I'm, I kind of the basis of my questions was that if we've been kind of in this low grade simmering stress 24 seven and not, uh, uh, you know, because of just constant dopamine hits from the computer and social media and our phones, you know, what's the ultimate negative effect of that? And, okay. and, and you were starting to lead into point number two, which is basically how we get over that. Right. So, okay. So, um, Okay, I'll answer your question now. Um, the, so the, the the tools that I was describing earlier, points one, two, and three, uh, are really vision tools that people can use throughout the day. The first one being to make sure you get a horizon view or panoramic vision from periodically throughout the day. Just use that as a quick tool. It takes 10 seconds maximum, and but use it repeatedly throughout the day, especially in this time of quarantine. The To answer your question, so dopamine is a very interesting molecule. It's a very misunderstood uh, molecule. So first of all, it's a, it's a neuromodulator. And that, that word modulator, as opposed to a neurotransmitter, is very important because what it does is it changes the activity of neurons in the brain. It acts as sort of an amplifier of certain brain circuits that contribute to certain behaviors and not others. Okay, so 
that's the that's the first important point about dopamine. Dopamine, we of course, is famous for its role in reward. It's what drugs of abuse like cocaine and amphetamine cause us to secrete tons of artificially, um, and it's a, it's secreted in the brain, and it makes us feel good anytime. Um, you know, we for cold we achieve warmth, or uh, we want to mate and we and we mate, or we are hungry and we eat. This is just nature's generic reward system. It's one of the major generic reward systems. Now, dopamine is fundamentally different than the rewards that come from things like serotonin and the opioid system. Things like serotonin and the opioid system tend to make our body relaxed, and they tend to make us feel very good in what's called the here and now. And here I'm borrowing language from a wonderful book uh, called uh, The Molecule of More. It's not a book that I wrote. But that the I the molecule what the molecule of more it's um quite good and if your listeners are interested in learning more about dopamine I, I recommend that book I'm sorry the author's name escapes me at the moment um but it's, Jay it's, can you look it up uh, that's it it's quite good so dopamine is a reward molecule in the brain that is secreted in response to our pursuit of things that are beyond the reach of our physical body now think about why nature would create a mechanism like this. So when you want something and it's out there, past literally past the physical reach of your body, Mother Nature designed it to be such that you secrete dopamine not just when you reach that thing, but when you are en route to that thing and you reach a milestone or a perceived milestone. This is crucial, okay? Because if you think about it, whether or not you're an animal that uses its nose to hunt or whether or not you're a human that's using vision to pick up small seeds that are red, not green, or hunt for meat or look for a mate or whatever it is, look for water. If you're on the right track and you sense that, maybe you sense that in working towards a deadline or a business goal, I'm on the right track, you get a lift. And that lift is the secretion of dopamine that keeps you in that narrow kind of tunnel of pursuit. And of course, there are dopamine rewards when you get the big payoff, you get the spouse that you always wanted, you get the, uh, you know, you get out of the pandemic, whatever. It, of course, there's a big payoff at the end. But it, but dopamine is very misunderstood as being the molecule that's only secreted at the end. It's the molecule that sort of lays out breadcrumbs for you and route to those goals. And so, here's so why instance, it's important. Why, oh, sorry. I was just, why it's relevant to stress is that when we're in motion and we're in pursuit of a goal, we, we want to, you know, we're pushing ourselves through exercise. We're pushing ourselves towards a business goal, or we're going to get to day 34 of the, of the quarantine. It's very taxing because norepinephrine, this constant secretion of norepinephrine, pushes us towards um, a state in which our vigilance and our overall output is very high. It's very taxing, metabolically demanding. Dopamine has this marvelous effect of resetting our threshold for how much norepinephrine feels like too much. So when you say, let me weave it back to your early example. When you say, I'm done with New York, I'm done. I'm just, I'm done. I'm like another ground zero, forget it. That's because right now you're in a mode of norepinephrine output, constant, constant. What you need, you need, you need a, maybe it's a view of the, uh, maybe it's a a, a horizon view, but more likely it's going to be, you need to feel a win. Once you register that win, you will notice immediately that your capacity to push on is continued. I do some work with with military. I don't want to get into it here. Um, uh, we, we probably shouldn't, but and some work also with athletes and so forth. But this is true of any profession or any um, of any pursuit. 
that when you reach a milestone, it allow it resets you, but that reset is not just subjective. It is neurochemical. It allows you to reset your threshold for how much norepinephrine is too much. Now, right now, everyone is bathed in norepinephrine and there's a problem, which is we don't know how long this is going to last. So what we need to do, I guess it could be, this could be point number four. What we need to do is we need to introduce subjective milestones in our own mind. We should all be congratulating ourselves that we've made it through three weeks of this social isolation. And really, if you're breathing and you're alive and you can hear this, you're winning. And you need to register that win if, there's, if you hope to get through this with a sense of restoration, if you, with anything but exhaustion. Now, people who work in very high-pressure, chaotic, dangerous environments know how to use this internal dosing of, of dopamine reward. The more you look to the external environment for dopamine rewards, the harder it's going to be, especially under these conditions, to suppress your own stress level. Now, if you think about famous stories, Nelson Mandela, Viktor Frankl, these people that were locked in small boxes, right, that, uh, and somehow managed to reframe their universe in terms of locus of control, they had the locus of control, not the external environment, et cetera, you notice that there's a progression that probably didn't happen all at once. Right? There's a progression in which we, we reduce the size of our mental and physical landscape. Their physical landscape was obviously reduced for them. You have a choice in that. So that they take control over small things. In the Frankel example is ultimately just control of his own thoughts. Dosing that dopamine reward so that he could push through times that would otherwise be entirely depleting and debilitating. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself 
you, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in Victor Frankl's case, he's he's in Auschwitz or in one of the Auschwitz camps, and he reframes his world by finding, instead of worrying on the hyper-local, like, am I going to get killed today? He says, well, I have a bigger meaning in my life that will carry me through this and and drive my life forwards even after this. And you're saying by reframing it, that reduced the neuroephrine and, and, and released dopamine. Almost certainly. And... You know, and I've, I've been in discussion with people who work through um, not just situations like that or work through cancer treatment or are work in very dangerous, high-pressure environments all the time by virtue of military careers. They learn to subjectively control, internally control this dopamine reward mechanism. It is by far the most powerful mechanism that human evolution installed in our nervous system to move from place A to place B without an understanding of what the outcome is going to be. We, you know, to be en route to a goal without knowing whether or not you're going to reach that goal, or, I mean, when we're, and, or when you're going to reach that goal, when are we going to get out of this thing? Nobody knows. No one truly knows, right? I don't know, you don't know, nobody knows. And so the key thing is to move the rewards. Yes, you could attack, attach your sense of reward to something much more global, but I'm guessing, and here I'm speculating, I'm guessing that Frank will probably use the technique that uh, a lot of people in these very dangerous uh, who work in very dangerous environments use, which is regular dosing of dopamine through their subjective system by moving rewards closer in on a regular basis throughout the day. What would this look like? So, Because I, I want your listeners to sort of think, is getting up and making a cup of coffee in the morning, are you just going to jump up and down like you just won the lottery? No, you're not. But what you have to realize is that when you set a tangible goal like moving through your day in a structured way and you reach that, the the dopamine reward system is entirely subjective. Unless you're ingesting a drug like cocaine or amphetamine, which hijack these systems and artificially cause release of dopamine, what you're doing is you're taking control over the sense that you are reaching milestones. And by doing that, you are extending your, let's call it resilience or your ability to push through long duration periods of norepinephrine, heightened norepinephrine release, which is what everybody's going through right now. Let me ask about this because this is kind of critical towards dealing with the stress. Like for instance, you, you brought, bring up making a cup of coffee. So I made a cup of coffee today, but I felt myself being a little impatient because 
coffee machine slow and I wanted to get straight to my computer to get into this box. And so I didn't, it's almost like what you're saying is in a woo-woo self-help wording is like this being present in the moment and enjoying that moment as opposed to kind of in self-help lingo, time traveling to the future and and anxious about the future while I'm in making that cup of coffee. So one of the most powerful ways to do this, it, it does sound a little woo, but, uh, but there's some neuroscience to put to this now. So um, look, I, I am, I'm actually, uh, I'm very woo-averse, um, frankly, despite growing up out here. Um, I like mechanisms and neuromolecules. My lab works, we use gene therapies and uh, help, you know, safe viruses for sake of understanding neural circuits. And so woo is, is complicated for me, but one of the most, um, interesting and powerful tools that you see very high performers. And when I say high performers, I don't necessarily mean stage performers. What I mean are people whose jobs are absolutely dangerous and they perform them exceedingly well over careers of decades. And you've consulted what, with, with SEALs, as you mentioned, and, and, so, and athletes so, and so on. Yeah. So I want, I want to be, um, be clear. I, I've done some work and I continue to do some work with Canadian special forces. I'm initiating some work with the, the U.S. groups. Um, the I have friends from those communities. I, I'm not in those communities, but um, what you find is that the ability to focus on small tasks and move through those meaningfully and complete them, as long as they're in direction, in the general direction of the greater goal, then you should need to register that you're moving in the right general direction. You never want to confuse, of course, making a cup of coffee with the larger goal of running your business or maintaining your marriage or something, right? But the idea is that by focusing on concrete tasks that you can control that are in the general direction that you want to go, making your cup of coffee is not getting back into bed. It's not um, hiding under the sheets. It's, um, if, you know, it's not uh, quaking in, um, in stress. You're moving forward and you need to register those wins in order to register the neurochemical benefits of those behaviors. Otherwise, you're just doing these behaviors and you're not able to sort of get this amplifying effect that I'm talking about. Your day is to basically going to start off high and end low, and it's just a question of how fast you're going to go down that decline. So, okay, so so with the specific, what's a specific technique? Because is it good enough to just think, oh, I just achieved a goal? That seems like too... Of course, uh, ephemeral. Of course, it's too ephemeral. It's 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 worse than woo. It's 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 woo and vague. So yeah, um, and admittedly, so one of the most powerful tools for this, where there's actually some science to support it, is with uh, and try not to cringe here, but is with uh, gratitude. So people confuse gratitude. People think that gratitude is navel gazing and saying, you know what, I'm just happy with everything I've got. I'm happy that I even have, uh, you know, that I live here. I'm even I'm happy with every little thing that I've got, they assume that it makes you complacent and less willing to pursue goals, but it's entirely wrong. That's, that's an entirely wrong premise. It turns out that, and, and there's good science on this, that the practice of gratitude has two effects. One is the secretion of molecules like the serotonin system, which make you indeed very happy about the here and now. You're content that you have a cup of hot coffee to drink, right? It's giving you that perspective. But there's also evidence that it promotes the secretion of neuromodulators like dopamine, which make your sense of possibility about things that extend beyond your immediate physical sphere more real again, right? So if you look at people who are able to sustain effort in very complex 
very, even chaotic environments or people that are navigating cancer treatment, they set milestones for themselves. And when they reach those milestones, they deliberately, and sub, it's subjective, but they deliberately internalize those milestones. And that, without question, leads to the secretion of these feel-good molecules, serotonin and dopamine, that then give them a sense of possibility about moving to the next milestone. So, so, so Andrew, let me ask just a, and at each point, I'm just trying to figure out different ways to, to understand and explain. Let's say um, a, a very simple example, someone's trying to get a promotion at work. So if they do a task and are successful at it, which they strongly think will lead to that promotion, that's like a strong dopamine um, trigger. And then if they actually get the promotion, would you say that's a strong serotonin trigger as opposed uh, to dopamine? No, a great question. Both are dopamine related because they're both related to things that arrive from outside of you. I mean, ultimately everything is, is, you know, impinging on our nervous system comes from outside us and these, neuro everything's internal, all the neurochemicals are internal, but just to be clear. So there's something called the reward prediction error. I was avoid, trying to avoid jargon, but the reward prediction error is the reason why, um, gambling, uh, is why casinos are, are rich. Okay. Reward prediction error is the reason why somebody who is a drug user gets more excited about going to use than the actual, they get dopamine as they realize they're going to, what they would call score. Or when someone, you've got a, uh, like a really exciting date set up for Friday and you're in anticipation of the person on your phone that you're going to meet, that's dopamine release. And then when you meet them and they're spectacular, then that's even more dopamine release. You could see why mother nature wired us this way. Okay. Hmm. So that it's the dopamine reward prediction error. The, the degree to which something is satisfying when we reach it depends on how much dopamine we received and route to that goal. So they've done beautiful experiments, for instance, where if the anticipation of something is much, it leads to more dopamine secretion than the actual thing. So, oh my goodness, I'm going to meet this amazing person and they seem phenomenal. They're so well suited to me. And then you walk in and you, you meet them and you, oh no, or they're just so, so well, then you're going to rate them overall. And that experience is much lower than had your dopamine um, and route to that goal been lower. So that if I tell you a restaurant is amazing, okay, come out here. I don't want to name restaurants because I'll, then I'll never be allowed in, but come out here. There's a restaurant in Napa and it's amazing. It's incredible. It's incredible. We come out here and you're very excited about it, James. The likelihood that you're going to rate that meal as extremely good is lower than if I just say, look, this place is phenomenal. Let's go. And I just leave it at that. Because the reward prediction error says now that meal has to exceed the dope, create a dopamine response that exceeds the one that you had while you were on the plane out here and we were discussing it. So anticipation is a dangerous thing. But what I'm talking about is leveraging anticipation for the specific purpose of the dopamine reward giving you buoyancy, giving you resilience, giving you the ability to move through long duration events of unknown duration. We know this COVID-19 thing is not going to be done tomorrow. So it's long duration. We just don't know how long it's going to be. So what would this look like in daily life? Moving, what, right now, people are just trying to survive, right? We're not talking about reaching a goal. They're just trying to survive this long period of stress. And so what I'm saying is you're going to have to do three things. First, at least three things. But one of them is going to be to control your sense of reward. You're going to have to move some sense of reward into that apartment that you're in, into that landscape that you're in. Maybe it's just getting to tonight. And when you get there, you think, look, I'm COVID-19 free. I made it to tonight. And just spend 60 seconds there realizing that you're that much closer. 
Now, of course, your mind is immediately going to flip to, well, how many days of this can I sustain? I don't know what that's fine. You want to train these mechanisms. We'll get to plasticity later, but neuroplasticity can allow you, all of us, to learn to enhance the ability to which these circuits can secrete dopamine. And I've spent a lot of time working with people who um, struggle with phobias and stress and anxiety. I've also spent a lot of time working with people who are phenomenal at achieving very long duration, unknown duration, high stress environments they, they, and can reach tremendous goals. And they do that by training up these systems the same way you would train up, uh, you know, uh, yeah, acumen for science or an acumen for anything. It's right? almost like training an uncertainty muscle. That's so, right. So, That's so right. for instance, to there's so much uncertainty right now, but, but if we get used to, Hey, if we get, if we build up the capacity the way you would build up the number of push-ups you could do. If you build up the capacity to have 60 seconds or 120 seconds of gratitude at the end of the day without flitting towards, you know, the anxieties of the day, then you're exercising that uncertainty muscle and, right. you're, and you're getting dopamine, more dopamine as a result. Absolutely. And we, and so you could say, well, this is just re resilience or grit, but it's different because resilience and grit implies the ability to lean in and push through strain and struggle. It's, it's about it's about uh, getting that norepinephrine release, leaning into challenge. It's fight. It's no fear. It's all the kind of like internet uh, meme mantras that you hear out there. But what I'm talking about is giving yourself some longevity for that fight, giving yourself the ability to reset your ability to secrete norepinephrine and lean into effort. And, 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 and that's because I'm, I'm just kind of translating, not that you need translation, you're explaining it really well, but what, what's happening there is your, the dopamine, as you said earlier, modulates your levels of neuropinephrine. I don't know how to say it. Norepinephrine, called, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, it allow, it, the more you can release this dopamine through controlling your sense of reward, the more you're able to uh, modulate this stress neurochemical that is you know, a net negative if we feel it all day long. Yes. And um, that's exactly right. Um, you summarized it perfectly. And I'll just say, so just to put some science to this, because I have a feeling some of your listeners are probably thinking, oh, well, this sounds, you know, I'm, I'm giving uh, sort of take-homes and takeaways from these studies. But it was a beautiful pu uh, paper published in Cell, a phenomenal journal, e easily on par with Science and Nature, top journal, um, very stringent last year, showing that looking at why people and animals quit. Why, what, you know, if you think about it, unless it's, I can't lift a car, I'm not that strong, but if I go out walking or running, why would I quit? Why do I quit at effort? What is the neurochemical signature of quitting? And it turns out that as we exert effort, we secrete this molecule, norepinephrine. At a, and I'm not talking about just globally. It does come from the adrenal glands, but it comes from areas in the brain specifically as well. Uh, it's secreted in an area of the brainstem gradually as we exert effort. And at some point, that norepinephrine level exceeds a certain threshold and it causes quitting by shutting down the motor circuits that generate effort. You know, we think of quitting as a kind of a, a there is a real neural, neural substrate for that. So, I love think, this. so think about, so all day long, you know, you're getting up and, and what I'm saying is focal vision, you're spending a little bit of energy. What I'm really talking about is you're secreting a little bit of noradrenaline. You don't realize it, but like now we're on the penny slots in the slot machine. So you go in, you got $100,000 to spend on a weekend because maybe you're wealthy, and you, but now you're spending on the penny slots. You don't even notice it. It's, it's intangible. 
as you go through your day, you're okay. Now you're looking at, you know, the various newspapers. Now you're checking the markets. Now you're doing all the things you have to spend carefully. I'm not saying just sit there and keep everything you've got. You want to spend this, but you want to spend, you want to allocate it appropriately. When you quit, when you feel like I can't take this anymore, your norepinephrine has sealinged out in this brainstem circuit and your forebrain says, that's it. I can't continue. I can't make plans. I can't make, I can't think logically. I can't organize my thoughts and behaviors in a way that makes sense. I'm just too stressed out. So you say you're too stressed out, and I've got um, putting that in quotes. But what that really is, is norepinephrine exceeded a certain threshold. Dopamine takes that level of norepinephrine, literally through a neural circuit mechanism, and suppresses it so that you have more gas. You have more mileage in you. You have more money to spend in my kind of um, example of, of entering the casino or to gamble. So and it is like a gamble because every day you get the same allocation. Now, this, this norepinephrine that we're talking about kind of now in kind of analogy and metaphor is what you wake up with in full supply when you had a good night's sleep. And guess what? If I want to take away all of that, I take away your sleep. You, if you ever tried to work after one night's no sleep, you're fine. I can do that. I, pull, no, I still pull all-nighters multiple times a year, but two nights – you can't even organize your plans. You start falling apart. What was, um, you know, the phrase, what the Vince Lombardi phrase, fatigue makes cowards of us all, you know? It's just, it's uh, at some point, this norepinephrine system is so powerful and the dopamine's relationship, the dopamine system's relationship to it is so powerful for how we evolve that you had to have a mechanism like this in place. You can imagine why there's a mechanism like this in place. And this COVID-19 thing is a test of our, it's interesting, this COVID-19 thing is a test of hum- is the test that human evolution is facing now. We need to apply these tools. And it's being what's interesting is that a couple of weeks ago when we were told to stay in, it really challenged the the very American view of like, I'm gonna fight this. We're gonna fight. You know what's really interesting? This time we're being asked to fight by suppressing behavior. And Americans, including me, we don't like that. We were like, no, we'll lean in, we'll blow it up, we'll kill it. This time, right, unlike 9-11. Navy SEALs can't save us from this one, right? This is a job for science. This is a job for medicine, and this is a job for the healthcare system. So we didn't like the idea that fight in this current test of evolution is playing on the same neurochemical mechanisms, norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, and so forth, those so-called stress systems and reward systems. But this time, the fight that we're being asked to show up with is not about spearing an animal or surviving a drought. It's about inaction. It's about our ability as human beings to suppress action. And this is, this is so fascinating tough. because in, in this situation, obviously we're powerless, which means it's harder to establish goals for ourselves when we feel powerless in this global situation. Hence, less dopamine, more neuroepinephrine. And, and what I love about what you're saying is this is kind of like, the neurobiology of woo-woo self-help, but in a way that once you can understand this, then you're able to apply it. And and uh, and I, I feel bad. I want to get you back to your first three things. You no, know, the first right. one was- we'll get there. I'll make sure that your yeah. listeners get it. Um, so it, along these lines, because I, I can tell, James, I like that you, um, you, first of all, you have an amazing ability to ask, I said it before, but ask the questions that are that are very trenchant, like right to the, the core issues. I would love for people listening to this to think about their nervous system, which of course governs everything, the immune system, everything, you know, 
their thought processes, their moods, everything. So think about the nervous system as it has very generic but very predictable responses. So the stress response was designed to protect us. Let's say that the, this wasn't COVID-19. Let's say it was 10,000 years ago, and there was a, like a stampede of woolly mammoths coming through every village. Th that village would have to figure out what to do, right? How are we going to deal with this? We don't have enough spears. What are we going to do? How are we going to organize? What are we going to do? We don't have enough spears as opposed to masks, right? The, human evolution has dealt with things like this over and over and over. So what Mother Nature has beautifully designed are neurochemical and neural circuit mechanisms that are very generic. Those, so stress tends to make us active and activated. It, literally, the secretion of noradrenaline in the body, also called adrenaline, and in the brain, promotes agitation because it was designed to get us to move. And that's why the suppression of behavior that we're being asked to, do, you know, to engage in now is so hard because stress, it makes us want to move. And here we're being told you can't move. So I'll talk about tools that you can use to sort of quiet the nervous system in that regard. If we succeeded, if we were going in the right direction, now we're talking about flattening the curve or a vaccine effort, right? But stampedes of woolly mammoths, or maybe it was something worse. Maybe it was that, um, you know, it's very dark to think about, but maybe it was all the, all the babies were stillborn at some point in human evolution. What are we going to do? They had to, they had to parse that and figure out, is it in the food we're eating? Is it in the water? Is there other, some, some contaminant? The human mind has evolved mechanisms to register stress, mobilize us, immobilize us, register reward. Right now, it's like we're groping around trying to figure out what to do, what's putting us on the, on the correct track. And people are arguing about, well, is you know, isolation the thing? No, the economy, we're trying to balance all these you know, reward systems and stressors. The, the beauty of this is that inside of all of us is we contain all the machinery to navigate this, this crisis and any crisis for that matter. The technologies are going to come from certain industries, in this case, science, healthcare, and, and so forth. But it's essential to understand that your nervous system housed within the contents of your skull and body, you have the ability to self-dose reward that will give you grit and longevity. I don't really, through this process, I don't really like the terms grit, mental toughness, because it implies all effort, all leaning in. As I said before, the people who are going to thrive or are going to survive and thrive this from the stress perspective, who are going to come out of this without PTSD, the people who are going to move through this adaptively, as we say, are going to be the people that can control their internal landscape while staying in close contact with and understanding the external landscape. And so I'm saying do the following things. First of all, learn to control the stress response in real time. I, I, I want to emphasize how important this is. Every, all of us were born little babies, and the first rule that we learned was how to look outside ourselves to relieve our own anxiety. A baby doesn't know it's hungry or it needs breast milk or it needs warmth. It just feels anxious. It cries, and then something, uh, hopefully, you know, breast milk or a diaper change or whatever was delivered to us. So the first learning rule the brain learns is when feeling anxious, look outside yourself to solve that anxiety. We need to learn to, as adults, and kids should need to learn this too. But as adults, we need to learn how to calm our nervous system when it's in a heightened state of stress. And do we do that? To do that, we need to use neural circuit mechanisms and neurochemical mechanisms. I'm not saying just sit there and control your thoughts. That doesn't work. So I'm saying go into panoramic vision. That will naturally disengage this vigilant stress system somewhat. You can do that as many times as you need throughout the day. If you find yourself staring into a small box of a phone or a computer too often in this time and you're too stressed, try and take a couple minutes a day where you're not doing that. 
Second, there's a, a fundamentally important neural mechanism. I talked about this on my Instagram the other day. I hosted a guy named Samer Hatar from the National Institutes of Mental Health. He runs the chronobiology unit, which is the study of how light impacts mood and stress hormones and very um, you know, concrete reductionist stuff. And I said, Samer, I know him well. He's a friend and a colleague. I said, what are the most important things right now that we should be doing with respect to light and sleep and all this? And he said, look, people don't realize it, but by going indoors, everyone is jet lagged. It's like they've, from a biological standpoint, it's like they've flown to, to China, Japan, back to New York and to California again, all in three days, because we're not anchoring ourselves to the outside light dark cycle. You need, here's what he recommended in which I support. You need to view sunlight to your eyes and it can be through a window. Yes. Ideally in the morning, but also in the evening before the sun sets every day. Now you say, well, okay, this sounds really woo. Now you're talking about like staring at sunsets. No, it turns out that that morning pulse of light, and it should come ideally from sunlight, even if it's through cloud cover, causes the timing of cortisol, which is a, a healthy stress hormone, provided it's not secreted too long or too much, causes the secretion of cortisol in the early part of the day, which leads to wakefulness and energy and, you know, and, and focus. And it sets the timing at which you're going to then feel sleepy and go to sleep later that night. It, I, I have a collaboration with a guy named David Spiegel in the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford where we're looking at respiration and vision and other things as they relate to stress. One signature feature of depression and anxiety is a late cortisol release, 9 p.m. cortisol release, signature physiological measure of being too stressed or depressed. You want your cortisol released early in the day. How do you trigger cortisol release? By viewing light, there's a special set of neurons in the eyes that when you see light early in the day, they signal, signal what's called the master circadian clock in the hypothalamus and triggers the release of cortisol early in the day and sets a timer so that by 9 or 10 p.m., you start to secrete the hormone melatonin, which promotes sleep, sleepiness and the transition to sleep. So, so right so let now- me, Let me ask you this, yeah. though. Like, like in the morning when I wake up, there's obviously more light in the room because I have a window, even if there's shades on it, uh, there's more light in the room than in the middle of the night. Does that, is that enough? Or do I actually have to go outside and see the sunlight? Ideally you would get sunlight. So the, even if it's through cloud cover, even if you're at a nor very Northern latitude and you're, you know, you're in Scandinavia, the sun does come out twice a day there. It comes up and, and sets, you know, um, uh, you know, rises and sets each day. Ideally, you would get it um, direct sunlight to the eyes outside. If you can't do that, you can do it through a window. If not, you can just look out to the sunlight outside. You can do very bright lights during the day inside. A lot of people are, are disrupting these rhythms because of the way they've moved indoors. They're not naturally getting outside. Sunlight, the photon energy of sunlight, even coming through clouds, is so bright that it can trigger activation of these special cells. For the aficionados out there, these are called melanopsin ganglion cells. They're an ancient mechanism. They have their own opsin, meaning they absorb, they have a photopigment, they absorb light, they transmit that light information in the form of electricity of the brain, and it causes a wake-up signal to the body that makes you feel energetic during the day and sets the timing and the quality of your sleep at night. Is it not enough light? to just wake up in a room that's not necessarily bathed in sunlight, but is just lighter than it was in the middle of the night just because, you know, Probably sunlight not. going through the shades? Probably not. And this is the reason why people, uh, a very valid, a clinically proven uh, treatment for seasonal affective disorder with people who live in very northern latitudes is this use of these blue, these artificial lights. Now, it's there's a second um, point to this 
point number two. What I'm calling point number two actually has some sub points. I guess I'm a scientist, so it's like a grant, you know, and the aim with the sub aims. Ideally, you would also get a little bit of light in your eyes, natural light in the evening. But by 10 p.m., from about 11 at the very latest until 4 a.m., your local time, you must avoid bright light from screens and from artificial sources. Here's why. Not just blue light and screen light, but bright light of all kinds. Now, I'll get into the fine details of this. There's a paper published in the journal, also in the journal Cell, by Samer's group, the gentleman I mentioned from National Institutes of Mental Health, last year showing that bright light exposure in the middle of the so-called circadian dark phase, in the middle of the night, when you get up and go to the bathroom, no big deal if you turn on the nightlight. But if you're staring at your screen in the middle of the night or you're getting bright light exposure for more than a couple minutes, it triggers activation of a circuit that goes from the eye to this brain structure I'm guessing most of your listeners have never heard of called the habenula of all things, which is the neural circuit suppresses dopamine release and causes depression-like symptoms. It is a pro-depressive circuit that's activated by this viewing of light in the middle of the dark phase of the night. Why does that exist? Or maybe Ah. it exists because it was never really developed before we had screens. No, this is a very good question. Mother Nature designed and installed in us reward mechanisms, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. You hold your child, you see someone you love, you get the serotonin release, the oxytocin release. This lent itself to pair bonding and and, uh, social bonding of various kinds and dopamine for the reasons we talked about before. This mechanism of disappointment is actually the one that's engaged when you anticipate a win and it doesn't come, or there's dis- you actually want circuits to punish certain behaviors. It leads to what's called long-term depression of certain s- circuits in the brain so that you don't repeat those behaviors. So as, as beings that are not super sophisticated, we don't often think about, well, what causes me to not want to do something again? Well, it was the disappointment that I achieved in the course of that. It was the failure or the loss or the this person disappointed me or that person disappointed me. I'm never going to do that again. Nature doesn't punish us with by touching a hot stove, so to speak, by burning just by burning our skin. It teaches our brain, don't touch that stove again. It doesn't just create a memory of the negative event. It creates a neurochemical signature of what disappointment and mental mm. pain was associated with that physical pain. Okay. Now for all, so getting up in the middle of the night from an evolutionary perspective and being active in the middle of the night should be punished because before artificial lights, this actually was a very dangerous behavior. So we are neurochemically bound. We are hormonally bound to the daily light dark cycle. So the right thing, there is a right answer here. If at all possible, if you're a first responder, you're working in the clinics at night, there's a whole other thing about jet lag and shift work. I interview Samer from time to time on my Instagram. Um, I don't mean to plug the Instagram, but the Huberman Lab Instagram. I talk about neuroscience. It's a not-for-profit free education thing, so I don't feel too guilty. Um, uh, it's know, okay. Money, Andrew but, Huberman at Instagram. Everybody yeah. should follow him. Like a lot <laughs> yeah. of great content. Yeah, I, I get guests like Samer on because, you know, in, in the science sector, we don't often get the chance to talk about how the science should translate to the general public. And, you know, we are public servants in the sense that we are paid by American tax dollars and um, they come from federal grants and so forth. And so um, I'm going to have someone on from National Institutes of of Drug Abuse soon and talk about natural rewards and more about dopamine. So in any event, get some sunlight in your eyes in the morning. If you wake up late, do it anyway. Get as much sunlight in your eyes during the day, especially during this time of the COVID-19 crisis. 
it will naturally support the release, the timing and release of certain neurochemicals that you want during the day, and it'll set you up for better sleep at night. Avoid bright light exposure in the middle of the night. If for whatever reason you look at your phone or you look at a screen for a minute or two minutes in the middle of the night, you're not going to trigger this mechanism. It's this mechanism is a slow integrator. It's the ref- how well you sleep tonight, James, is going to be the reflection of your light viewing behavior for the pre- in the previous two or three days. So it's funny because like, so if I binge watch, like last night I binge watched Breaking Bad until midnight, that's probably a bad idea. I mean, you're, you know, you're going to integrate over other things. If you force yourself to get up in the morning, I notice you've got some light coming in through the window behind you. So you're probably okay, but try and get some panoramic views, try and get some light in your eyes each day. You know, uh, we talked about woo earlier. I mean, these are not, um, uh, these are hard, these aren't hacks. Okay. These aren't things that I came up with. These are mechanisms that are very present, very salient in our neural circuit machinery of our brain and body. And so they were put there, they were tried and tried again and evolved and developed over thousands of years to provide our ability to move through stress, to provide reward, to provide our sense of of bonding and social settings, to provide metabolic health. If, If it's not enough to just point to this disappointment circuit, here's the really interesting thing, I think. There was a paper published in Nature just this last year showing that when this habenula becomes active for too long, this disappointment circuit, it actually is connected through a neural circuit that goes down from your habenula in your brain to your pancreas, which controls blood sugar. And the habenula is actually involved in controlling your blood, um, uh, your blood sugar reg- to some extent. This is one of the reasons people believe, this is an early hypothesis, is that there are a lot of kind of hyperphagia or the desire to eat too much when we're when people become depressed. So there's there the brain and body are linked by these neural connections. So it's kind of beautiful, right? You think about this mother nature installed mechanism of okay, you're doing the wrong behavior, you're up at the wrong times of night. Um, maybe you're under a lot of stress. I'm going to make you very hungry by causing your pancreas to oversecrete insulin. It makes perfect sense. Is this why when um kids are on Adderall, uh, which, which triggers, you know, which attaches to that dopamine receptor or maybe over triggers artificially dopamine. Is this why they lose hunger? Uh, so that's a very interesting. So, um, if you want to understand how dopamine works uh, or Adderall works, which Adderall is a form of amphetamine, um, people might ask, well, why would you give a kid amphetamine if they have trouble focusing? Turns out that that dopamine system that's involved in generating these rewards and route to, and when you achieve a goal is also very good at focusing your attention. It's a neuromodulator, we mentioned that earlier, and it modulates the circuits that are involved in attention. So for kids that are challenged with attention and they can't hold their attention, and it's these four brain, what we call top-down circuits, these, you can train up those circuits during development by giving a drug, in this case Adderall, that promotes the secretion of two things, dopamine and norepinephrine give them energy and, and give dopamine to focus that energy into a narrow funnel or goal. Now, some of these drugs are controversial for the other effects that they can have, but the young brain is very plastic and we will get to plasticity. But it's, um, that's the reason. If you look at drugs like cocaine, let's just look at dr- drugs of abuse. I'm not recommending anyone do these, but if you look at drugs that like cocaine and amphetamine, what do they tend to do? They tend to make people rabid in pursuit of things outside of them. Work, money, sex, more drugs, drugs that promote the secretion of serotonin and opioids, heroin, marijuana, they tend to make people sedate and calm and content in their, just with the things that exist within the confines of their skin and skull. 
So th- those are kind of the extreme examples. And they, they are drugs of abuse and they're quite deleterious because they tend to create such heightened levels of dopamine or serotonin or opioids that people don't want to do anything. They don't go pursue these through natural means. These are natural reward mechanisms that drugs of abuse hijack. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, I said panoramic vision from time to time, view light uh, throughout the day, view light in the morning and in the evening to set these cortisol and, and melatonin rhythms. Avoid bright lights in the middle of the night as often as you can. Stay off your computer in the middle of the night. If you wake up in the middle of the night, well, let me back up a little bit. We all know how important sleep is. One of the worst things you can do to someone who's an insomniac is tell them how important sleep is. I mean, now everyone's stressed and they know they should sleep and they're having trouble sleeping. These light viewing behaviors and avoiding light in the middle of the night will help make your sleep of higher quality. And I'm not making that up. That Sammer's lab, a guy named Chuck Zeisler, who's at Harvard, Harvard Med, has shown that this light viewing behavior, the light has to arrive to your eyes, not to some other part of your body, um, is really what sets the correct and healthy organization of your sleep and wake cycles, as well as the so-called sleep architecture, the architecture of your sleep. There are other things you can do for sleep um, in the supplementation realm, but I don't recommend people take melatonin unless their doctor really thinks it's a good idea. There are some other things uh, that at least I use that I think are, are healthier that can promote sleep. We could talk about those if you want, but that's outside the realm of my role as a neuroscientist. That's just kind of what I've found to be useful. Um, so the third thing is that I believe, and this, um, and my lab is working on this. I have an active collaboration with David Spiegel's lab in psychiatry. My lab has worked on this for a number of years now that everybody should have a tool, not just to push back on stress in real time, like the panoramic vision, but they should also have a tool that teaches them to relax their nervous system. And these tools can make you much better at sleeping. So you actually need to get better at sleeping. Some people sleep really well. They fall asleep easily. They stay asleep, no problem. Many people are challenged with sleep in part because they're not getting enough light during the middle of the day to their eyes and they're getting too much light in the middle of the night. But there are tools and I can provide them as a link or we can put them out there. But what I recommend is going on YouTube and looking up, there's a practice, and this sounds woo, but we've done a, we've studied a derivative of this by removing all the woo and just looking at the practices they're incorporated into. There's a practice called yoga nidra, which involves no movement, no bends, no down dogs, no nothing. It's N-I-D-R-A. It involves lying down and you just listen to a script. These are completely cost-free. You lie down. There's a 10-minute one. There's a 30-minute one that I'm partial to. But you do these while you're awake and you stay awake while you listen to the script. And it's just a progressive relaxation exercise. It's not meditation. It's just progressive relaxation. What you're doing when you practice, when you do this practice each day, 10 minutes or 30 minutes, is you're teaching your nervous system to, to relax. And sleep is a process of turning off thinking and doing. The doing part is easy. You just lie down in bed. You turned off doing. Now you need to turn off thinking. And that's very hard to do. Turning off thoughts using your thoughts is almost impossible. If I'm like, don't think about that. You, of course you think about it. So yoga nidra is a very interesting practice that our lab and David's lab and others have started to look at because it involves using respiration or breathing. It mainly, when you strip away all the woo stuff, it's really about taking inhales through the nose that are about two seconds long and then doing seven second or longer slow exhales through the mouth. So, um, well, you know, yeah. I always wonder why is the exhale longer than the inhale? Ah, great question. So, um, here's a tool I'll give you right now, um, for real time 
relaxation. This is, we're studying these, all right? These aren't just tools that we pulled out of our hat. And I'll tell you how it works. So when you breathe in, so we breathe to bring in oxygen, obviously, and then distribute it through from the lungs to the bloodstream to all the cells in our body. But we also breathe to get rid of carbon dioxide. The impulse to breathe and the stress response is caused by increases in carbon dioxide. The neurons in the brainstem that control breathing don't seek oxygen, they seek to remove carbon dioxide. So you take a breath every time carbon dioxide has gone too high. And the stress response in agitation is caused by elevated carbon dioxide. So the long exhale relaxes you because you're blowing off more carbon dioxide. And so there's three things that people can do with their breathing that will really help calm them throughout the day. One is just slow your breathing down. Forget deep breaths. Just take fewer breaths per minute. Take some practice to get used to. But when you do that, you actually increase the amount of oxygen that you bring in. The oxygen utilization just naturally goes up. The percentage of oxygen goes up. And you're removing more carbon dioxide. All practices that involve relaxation involve blowing off carbon dioxide. So here's a real-time tool you can do right now. Actually, Stanford Media released this yesterday on, our, on Stanford's Instagram. Um, but I'll tell it to you now. So you are going to inhale through your nose. But then at the top of that inhale, before you exhale, you're going to inhale again. So it's two inhales followed by an extended exhale. And you don't have to count how long. So it's inhale, then inhale again, and then a long exhale through the mouth. So two inhales through the nose followed by an exhale. What that does is the double inhale expands what's called the avioli of the lungs, these little sacs of air in the lungs. And they pull carbon dioxide out of the bloodstream. And so when you breathe out, you're dumping carbon dioxide and you naturally have more oxygen in your system. It brings you that kind of alert but calm state. It works within just one to three of those cycles. It's a very powerful tool that is activating what are, uh, you're using a specific set of neurons that are involved in sighing. You have a set of neurons for coughing. You have a set of neurons for normal reflexive breathing. You have a set of neurons for laughing. And you have a set of neurons for sighing. And the sigh is something that subconsciously you do periodically throughout the day anytime your carbon dioxide level gets too high. So you don't realize it, but throughout the day when carbon dioxide gets high, James, you're walking around or you're sitting at your desk and you do this double inhale imperceptibly to you and then a longer exhale. And that resets the carbon dioxide and oxygen ratio. I, I want to try to... Um... What, what I love about this, so in, in, I think it was like 2011, I wrote an article, which was just anecdotal, but it basically said, whenever you're panicking about something or whenever I'm panicking about something, I tend to breathe very quickly. Right. And whenever I'm relaxed and looking at the sunset, kind of like what you're saying, I tend to breathe more deeply, just sort of naturally. And so if you can kind of just recreate that artificially, it might create the same effect. And you're sort of explaining the neuroscience behind this, which is why I love it. So, uh, uh, you know, is there an amount of, you know, so is the, is, is when I'm stressed, am I breathing more shallowly and more quickly, hence building up the CO2 without releasing it? That's right. So you're, which so, then increases the stress. Yeah. So nature is good, but she's not perfect. So she designed a mechanism where when you get stressed, you either hold your breath or you're breathing faster. And that's an attempt to bring in more oxygen and to dump more carbon dioxide, but it's not as efficient as the size. If you look at the sighing, the, the response, uh, the activation rather, of the sighing neurons, they promote, so 
they promote activity of a, a circuit since you like neuroscience and hopefully your listeners are interested in some neuroscience. And again, I put out the names, not because the names are important. If you want to take, I teach neuroanatomy to medical students at Stanford. If you want to learn neuroanatomy, go to medical school. But if you, the reason why the names, the, the circuit mechanisms, I, I like to put them out there is because I think when people start to appreciate that they actually have machinery inside them that's designed to do this, then we're no longer talking about going to a yogic retreat or a 10 day meditation or buying something online. I'm just telling you, look, the, you got this stuff in you, just like you got fingers to pick things up. You've got something called the phrenic nerve, P-H-R-E-N-I-C. There's a lot of discussion nowadays about the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is a very interesting nerve that links the brain and body, promotes relaxation. But the phrenic nerve, the phrenic nerve is where it's at. Here's why. Vagus activation, which causes calming, is what happens when you eat a big meal. A lot of people are stressed, so they're going to eat more. They eat more, and when the belly is full, a signal is sent via something called the vagus nerve back to the brain, which instills the calming response. This is why people eat when they get stressed. They're trying to calm themselves. Great. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's very slow. It's very slow. Right, which is why supposedly you don't realize you're full until 20 minutes after you're full. It's very slow. The enteric nervous system, as it's called, that registers fullness, doesn't kick kick back information to the brain for very long periods of time. The phrenic nerve, on the other hand, is your body's real-time communication between the brain and body about the status of the body. Think about it. Your brain evolved to be at, at a level of alertness and stress and arousal or calm, depending on how mobile your body is. So since all the limbs can't send information to the brain and have that integrated quickly, what the brain does, it devised a connection called the phrenic nerve that goes from the brain to the diaphragm. The diaphragm is what controls movement of the lungs. Okay. Now, animals like humans have a diaphragm because we have big brains. Animals that are like reptiles, they don't have that. They move, by, they move their lungs by moving their ribs. So we have this connection with the diaphragm. Why am I talking about the diaphragm? Well, the phrenic nerve connection with the diaphragm is used whenever you breathe involuntarily throughout the day, but you can take conscious control of it. Just like I can walk and not think about it, or I can walk and control my gait, or I can try and think about how I'm walking. You can take conscious control. So the, the diaphragm is powerful for several reasons. First of all, it sends connections back to the brain and says, I'm moving slowly, calm down. Or I'm moving quickly, become more alert. So if you think about it, the brain and body are in this dialogue all the time. And so if you're too stressed and you're like, I need to calm down, I need to calm down, you're trying to talk yourself into that, that's like trying to hammer a nail with a nail. You don't need that. You need the hammer, okay? It's not going to work. So the diaphragm, is not, this isn't a hack. This double inhale, long exhale isn't a hack. You have neurons that are designed to do this. And the diaphragm, this is the really beautiful part that I love, is the only skeletal muscle in, that is an internal organ. Okay, you got a few that are in your throat, but your heart, you can't control its movements. You can't control it directly anyway. Your spleen, your thymus, your liver, you can't do that. You do that indirectly through behaviors. The diaphragm is under conscious control. You can decide to inhale, hold, exhale, hold. You can do all these things. So Mother Nature made this organ called the diaphragm, which is every bit as much a limb as any other limb on our body, except it's inside our body. And it was designed to move our airway system to inform the brain how active we are. It's designed to move air in and out of the lungs at a rate that we decide. So I don't think of breathing and respiration as, I don't even like to call it breath work because that sounds too much like 
it sounds too woo. It's just respiration physiology. You can consciously control. I can't control my cardiac physiology directly. I can eat the right foods. I can take jogs. I can do take statins or whatever I want to do, but that's all indirect. Respiration sets the state of your brain, and, I can, and you can control respiration. You have a neural circuit involving this phrenic nerve to diaphragm and back again to the brain, to the brain stem that controls all this. So when I say do a long double inhale, long exhale, that's not, you know, that's what nature designed to calm ourselves down. So you can employ that. You can use that tool any moment throughout the day. And, and again, the double inhale is to basically just pump a little bit more CO2 in there than normal. So you get that much more, I guess, dopamine as you do the long exhale, dumping all the CO2 out. Okay. So to be clear, the dopamine system uh, you can register anytime you do this, oh, this feels good, but the dopamine system isn't directly related to this in real time. It's more about um, bringing in oxygen and dumping CO2. Dumping CO2 is going to enhance the calming response. So just like you have a stress response, I guess the, the key point here is that, and I should have said this earlier, so forgive me, is that you have a system for stress. Everyone's familiar with that system right now and in general, but you also have neural circuits designed to calm you that are specifically designed to calm you. Now, unfortunately, we have to learn how to use those, whereas the stress system works just fine on its own. Um, and so what I'm doing, talking about you know, light in the morning, panoramic vision, uh, double inhale, long exhale, these are all tools um, or practices that we know support the, the activation of the biology that promotes calming. That's what this oh, is I, I, I love this so much. Like, Andrew, you should write a book, and I'll tell you the title. It should be... Uh, you have your, your happy chemicals and self-help. Okay. So uh, and um, the subtitle is how to, how to supercharge self-help. Okay. So for full disclosure, I, I have a book contract with Simon and Schuster. It'll be out in January, 2021 or so, depending on um, any delays that are introduced by that. Maybe um, it's got stuff like this, but a lot more. Um, and maybe when the time comes, um, uh, we can have a discussion about the book. I didn't mention it, but because you brought it up, uh, uh, it'd be fun to talk about come time for release. That's great. I have yeah. a book coming out February, 2021. So we're in the same boat. Have you oh, finished great. your book so, yet? Uh, I'm believe it or not, I'm on the last chapter, which incidentally happens to be, uh, about neuroplasticity. So if you wanted to talk about that, we could, we could wrap that in. I don't know what our timing. No, is no, right we're going to do, we're going to do a part two. So okay, I want to, I want to get to these more of these, um, responses to the stress and coronavirus. So you've listed three things. You also kind of casually mentioned a fourth, which is establishing and and this is this was related to dopamine. It was subject, establishing subjective milestones that so you 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 are able to congratulate yourself uh, throughout the day. And my question there is, how do you make it so it's not BS? Like I don't artificially just congratulate myself for waking up, which is yeah, it feels like that's too too much thought and not enough reality. Got it. So there there are two ways I can answer that. Um, one is that I can tell you with certainty that. People that are very resilient and gritty and do and accomplish excruciatingly hard things, not just, not just per sports performance or military performance, but do that over very long periods of time with a lot of uncertainty, are masters of this. So that's a, sort of a dodge of an answer because it's not really answering it at a biological level, which is what I'll do next. But I guarantee you that this is not about saying, hey, I put my shoes near the door um, and tomorrow I put, and then the next day I put my shoes on and therefore I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm, you know, it's the equivalent of running a marathon. It's not like that. But one has to 
ideally, to navigate stress of unknown duration and kind uh, or outcome, right? We don't know the outcome with this COVID thing yet. In order to do that, we need to have mechanisms to inject dopamine into this high output regime that we've been talking about. So the key thing here, if you want to understand how to do this, is to register the milestone at a level of it's in the direction of the overall goal, right? Uh, my co- colleague, Carol Dweck, who talks about growth mindset, we you know, have a lot of discussions uh, on a regular basis, has often said, you know, positive self-talk, you're often delusional. And in fact, positive self-talk can be detrimental if your positive self-talk is in relation to the ultimate goal or endpoint. Right. And she, she calls that the fixed mindset. And there's all these studies that it could actually be damaging. That's right. So if you say, look, I got up and I made a cup of coffee and I said, good morning to my spouse and looked them in the eye. And therefore I've conquered the COVID-19 crisis. Well, then that's not positive. That's positive thinking. And it's delusional because one thing has right. nothing to do with the other. However, if you wake up, you make a cup of coffee and you suppress your impulse to look at the news or you look at the news and you still make your cup of coffee. And then you go to your spouse and you say, good morning. And you look them in the eye. What you, and you think to yourself, okay, you know what? I'm moving through this day in the most constructive way that I possibly can, despite the huge number of things that are impinging on me now. And you allow the, you, what you're trying to do is train up plasticity of these circuits that are subjective, which are designed to control dopamine release. It's what we call, here's the mechanism, it's top-down processing. The brain has bottom-up processing, which is re- reflexes. Step on attack, move your foot. There are circuits for that. Smell something putrid, cringe your face. Smell something delicious, inhale. There are natural circuits for that. You don't have to think about that. The brain, the human brain, has immense real estate of the forebrain, which is designing for planning and action, but also to ascribe subjective meaning to these neurochemical systems. This is what any addict has to start to invoke in order to overcome the natural tendency for dopamine to be released when they use they have to start saying, oh, when I go to my AA meeting or I call somebody, that's actually, they're not going to feel that great from that practice as they did when they use. Let's be realistic. The alcoholic likes to drink. Going to meetings, at least for the new, the alcoholic who just got thrown into AA because they lost their job or their relationship or they finally want to go sober, it doesn't feel as good as drinking by definition. What they're doing is they're providing some subjective label to a new behavior that's designed to overtake some portion of those dopaminergic circuits. Okay, so you get to designate subjectively which behaviors are going to invoke dopamine release, and it has to be trained up. I'm not saying you're going to make your coffee tomorrow, James. You're going to be like, I win. What I'm telling you is people that win the long race, the long, uncertain, chaotic, complex race, are good at creating these little milestones throughout their day. Like, I made it to noon and I accomplished something today. And they, we tend to do this in, in a very, what I guess psychologists and neuroscientists would call domain-specific way. If you're like, I know you're, you're very versed in the world of money and markets and finance, you learned how to do it in that world. If you, I'm sure you can think of examples. I learned how to do it in the world of science and writing grants and publishing papers and that kind of thing, graduating PhD students from Stanford and so forth. But we tend to do this in a very narrow trench where we know if we're on track. What I'm saying is you can use these mechanisms to say, okay, look, we're now entering week four of the COVID-19 crisis. My goal right now, this is my own personal goal, is 
to be productive and effective and to hopefully share useful information with the general public every day, every day, and to get some exercise. And those are the three things that I write down and that I think about. And if I accomplish those, everything else is outside my range of control, but I can control those. And I find, just to put some color on this by some example, by making sure I achieve those three things every day, I don't feel depleted in this regime. I actually feel like I'm at least on track, if not thriving. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, I, 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 I think a lot of people have a notion of a practice that they do. So for instance, I've, I've written about over the past 10 years, my daily practice, which it's a fill in the blanks thing for every, you know, if anybody else does it, which is what can I do today to improve physical health, emotional health, creative health, spiritual health. And I, at the end of the day, if I ask myself, what did I do? And I feel like I did something, I do get that boost of, ah, I accomplished something. I did my, I did the only thing I was really supposed to do today. And that does feel good. And you're explaining kind of the neuroscience behind that. Yeah. So I, I, um, I don't want to, uh, plug too many things, but I wrote an article with a guy named Pat Dossett, who's uh, spent nine years in the SEAL teams. He's a, a friend and colleague of mine through some work that, that we do, um, about, the neuroscience and sort of tools that Navy SEALs use to move through um, unknown duration, high, highly complex, highly chaotic environments. And the three things kind of, they relate to this and they might surprise you. One is to focus on these small control what you can control tasks and to register the dopamine reward, which is exactly what I've been describing for what we've talked about for the last 90 minutes or so. The other one is, and this might seem Woo, but SEALs definitely do this. Their, their notion of team and their team cohesion is extremely strong. And the idea is to, when you're feeling powerless and overwhelmed and stressed, you need to get your mind off yourself. And you do that basically by supporting somebody else. The more stress they get, the more they look to the needs of people outside them. And now in this quarantine crisis regime, this for me looks, this um, shows up as I'm doing public education as much as I can and giving people tools um, like we did yesterday through Stanford, et cetera. It might mean calling somebody or checking in on somebody. It's about the, the human brain. There's a much larger discussion we could have another time, but the human brain can focus on probably two things at once. The primates have this capacity for covert attention and split our attention between two things, but probably not three or 10. When both points of attention are our, on our, our own internal state, we tend to feel it's more likely we're going to feel miserable, right? When you start to focus your attention outside yourself on supporting other people, the, the stress gets released because you're, not, you're sort of taking some level of vigilance off your own internal state. A lot of stress is, form, is created by too much attention on internal state. And so if it sounds kind of woo, I guarantee you uh, guys in the SEAL teams do this, guys in Canadian Special Forces do this, People who really understand high-performing teams that work in high-stress regimes of unknown duration, they focus on what they need and staying calm, but they take that excess energy and agitation and stress. As I mentioned before, stress is agitation. It's the impulse to move. And they place that into something effective that supports someone outside of them. So maybe it's not so, about so making look, a cup of coffee for yourself. Maybe it's about making it for your spouse or, or, or calling a neighbor or doing something useful to somebody else. So let me ask briefly about the the neuroscience of this. So, and this is this is related to to gratitude also because your your gratitude to something you're feeling grateful maybe for something external to you. So when you support someone else, you're kind of um, increasing your stability within the tribe. The tribe wants you, 
the more you help the members of the tribe. Yeah. And so is that like a, an, does that trigger oxytocin when you support someone else, which is another kind of, um, uh, neurochemical where you feel satisfied or, or happy? Absolutely. And so here again, so we're sort of, I'm noticing a theme, like we're talking about sort of the neuroscience support for what could be thought of as like kind of woo or self-help practices. But I think, you know, one of the major goals of my lab has been to try and strip down those practices to their kind of core essence so they can be quick, physiologically relevant, and maybe and to improve those practices. So what you're talking about, actually, so when you support somebody else or you feel connection to somebody else, yes, there is secretion of this famous molecule oxytocin, which is involved in pair bonding and all sorts of things. Oxytocin promotes the feelings of well-being and pair bonding. But there's a more important neurochemical signature of helping other people. And that is suppression of a peptide called tachykinin. Okay, this is published work both in, this is evolved from flies, Drosophila, common experimental model, all the way to humans. Tachykinin is an incredible molecule. And when you, I'll tell you what it does in a second, but when you engage in pro-social behavior, you suppress release of tachykinin. And when you isolate, you promote release of tachykinin. What does tachykinin do? Tachykinin causes stress and heightened perception of fear. Tachykinin promotes low-level aggression, and it inhibits the immune system. So think about this from an evolutionary perspective. We're animals living in we are human beings living in caves, or maybe we live in prairies. We didn't all live in caves, by the way. There probably weren't enough caves. The or huts <laughs> or whatever. I don't like the cave and saber-toothed tiger we, example. We actually, we, there's evidence we lived on the edges of plains. Oh, interesting. You know, like flat, uh, uh, empty areas. So we could see, so A, we could clearly see when something's coming out of the jungle towards us, and we could run as fast as possible to the jungle on the other side of the plane. That makes sense. And plenty of horizon viewing, but I just made that up myself. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so tachykinin, so think about it. Nature has a reward, oxytocin and serotonin, which make us feel good when we engage in pair bonding behaviors. This is crucial for human evolution for obvious reasons. And nature has a punishment. When you spend too much time alone, even though I like time alone, I'm a bit of an introvert. You spend too much time alone. If you don't pair up with your tribe or any members of your tribe at all, or an animal of any kind at all, your body starts secreting tachykinin. It promotes anxiety, heightened levels of fear, low level aggression, and it suppresses the immune system. And, and this is the difference. This is different from the stress created by neuroephrine and, and cortisol. That's right. So cortisol, norepinephrine are secreted on a regular basis to promote activity and alertness and, and healthy agitation. You want that during the day, not at night, obviously, for, for uh, obvious reasons related to typical circadian rhythms and activity schedules. Tachykinin is nature's punishment for being isolated. And so it's like, it's like, it's like the dark matter of oxytocin. That's right. And, and I think this is an important theme to illustrate everything in the nervous system. Everything has a push and a pull. There's a reward and a punishment. When I teach neuroscience to students, I talk about this, your ability even to perceive sweet tastes is dependent on the inhibition of circuits that detect bitter taste in the tongue and in the brain. Your ability to detect dark objects is dependent on the suppression of neurons nearby them that detect bright objects. Pain, stress and relaxation, right? Um, oxytocin and tachykinin, dopamine and norepinephrine. They, they, these neurochemicals, again, are the push-pull of our nervous system that are designed to move us towards certain things and away from others. And what my lab is really about, and what I'm 
sort of about these days, at least in terms of public education, is trying to describe the neural mechanisms and the tools that one can adopt, or even give some basis for the tools that people already do. You know, uh, maybe they pray, pray before they eat, right? Or when they wake up in the morning. There is a, neuro, a, a logical neural basis for why that works for certain people. The subjective part is important. What people believe is very important. And it's so important. I'll kind of just throw out one more study because I can't resist because this is what I do for a living. Yesterday in Science, there was a paper, the journal Science, there was a paper published which showed that stress- What was it called? Uh, the, the paper, um, a, yeah. a neural circuit basis for um, psychosocial stress. And it, they identified the brain area. It's a, a really bizarre little brain area that under conditions of stress promotes legitimate fever. Three legitimate degree, what? Two, what fever. So stress yeah. promotes two to three degree increases in body temperature that are mediated oh, through yeah, a neural circuit in the dorsal thalamus. Yeah, I posted something about this. So when people say it's all in your head, you have to remember that your brain is linked to your body is linked to your brain. It's a big loop. And so these relationships are not, they're not coincidental. They're wired in there. So many people now are feeling sick. They're feeling, I'm not, if you think you have COVID, by all means, isolate and get tested or whatever it is that is the standard health protocol that's being um, promoted out there. But it is absolutely crucial that people understand that stress itself promotes fever. Why? Well, fever, the elevated body temperature, was designed to kill viruses. When we want to kill viruses in the lab, what do we do? Sometimes we use bleach, but what we really do is we heat inoculate them. Now, that doesn't mean go jump in a sauna because you have ways that your body regulates heat. And I don't want to think, uh, you know, sort of let people think that heat is the only way to do it. But the body creates a fever to try and kill the thing that is inhabited them, in this case, a virus. That's nature's way of, of combating infection. It's one way. And so stress, if the body and brain perceive stress, creates fever so that you can combat infection. Most people don't realize this, but transient periodic increases in stress enhance the immunity of a system. You don't want your stress high all the time. You still want to sleep at night and sleep deeply. But why would it be that way? It turns out that the the cells of the body that create white blood cells and combat infection are, are innervated, as we say. They receive little wires from the nervous system. The sympath It's called the sympathetic nervous system, which is the stress system. Think about it. If there was famine, you need to be agitated to go look for food. You need to move from your current conditions. So it creates a sense of agitation in the body. That's what adrenaline does, makes you agitated and promotes activity of the immune system. If you've ever taken care of a loved one or studied for an exam or had a startup company, you work, 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 and then you stop and then you get sick after finals. Yes, exam. I've noticed this yeah, because for the past 20 years. I never you had finally a... relaxed. You finally relaxed. So what happens? Like I've seen people be so stressed, finally sell their company, they're happy, and within three days, they're dead from a heart attack. That's right. Because it was... Oh, so um, a, a short-term example would be some people see blood and pass out. Well, why is passing out an extreme form of stress? It's overactivation of the calming system, the so-called vasovagal response. Or over so when you're really stressed, those people, they have a very labile stress response. So it's like a teeter-totter. It goes really stressed in the body, pushes back and says, no, calm. And they go, boom, and they pass out. But, but why, do, why, does it, why is it delayed off in the response until you finish... Right. You know, like in this, like you sell the company and you finally relax. Yeah. And some people get depressed and yeah. Um, because 
you as human beings, we evolved a tremendous capacity to push through long duration stressors, to get up early and stay up late. You know, a lot of what's on Instagram and on the internet is about grind, 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 resilient mental toughness, no fear, all this kind of thing. And that's norepinephrine, 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 norepinephrine. You can do that because that, that was nature's way of making sure that no matter how long duration something was, you could push through it. But then there's a rebound, what's called parasympathetic response. Um, to sleep, rest, digest, store fat for the next round, that kind of thing. And during that stress bout, your immune system was getting pushed. Let's go. Let's fight this. Let's fight this. Let's fight this. That shuts off. And so the immune system tanks out. So what people need to do right now, this is relating to general immunity, enhance your, get your sleep right. Stay off devices in the middle of the night. We talked about the tools earlier, so I won't repeat them. Light, panoramic vision, et cetera get on a routine, stay on a routine as much as possible. The other thing that they need to do is understand that if you get periodic bouts of stress throughout the day, like you look at the news and you're freaking out or the markets and you're freaking out, that's going to periodically pulse your immune system to be active and keep you healthy. But you don't want it to- what's called tonically high or chronically high because then you start burning so, out. These so you're saying it's okay to, to uh, uh, immerse yourself in stress like two or three times a day. Like I'm going to, I'm going to say two o'clock and five o'clock, I'm going to read the news, see all the scary headlines, and then I'm going to shut it down. Yeah. If anything, uh, you know, I, I might make a few enemies by saying this, but if anything, it's going to boost your immunity. And I mean, there's a you know, biological basis for that. And remember the way we're fighting this thing is through inaction. The more, the more fear type stuff we see, you know, the more we're going to reinforce that we're doing the right thing. I actually think that we should be congratulating ourselves for having quarantined as well as we have. I talked to a close friend who also happens to be a neuroscientist who had to flee New Orleans around Katrina. And we had a conversation the other day and he reminded me, you know, that whole effort, the FEMA thing, there were big problems, the convention center, there were huge problems. And I want to acknowledge those, but it was also, there were aspects of it that were a highly successful evacuation of a major American city. So New York right now is struggling and you know lots of places are struggling, but we need to look at where we're succeeding too if we're going to make it through this unknown duration stressful event. We need to talk about the things that are going right and register those individually and ideally as groups as well because they they promote they those things promote the dopamine release that are going to allow us to move through this long duration thing. We can't just grind this one out. We got to be smart. We got to be logical. We got to know when it's time for action, when it's time for inaction. And it's happening in real time. I think we're going to look back on this period of history and we're going to realize, wow, we didn't do this perfectly. There were things that we should have done better, but this really capitalized on the human nervous system's ability and, and human culture's ability to parse something and use these ancient, what are really ancient mechanisms to move through it adaptively. I'm not at all surprised at what I see, the emotional contagion, the stress, the fact that people were in ignorance, the people who uh, think they're immune, uh, all this stuff. I think that they all reflect the activation of these circuits where we're trying to figure it out. Now we know what we need to do. And as we do that, the social distancing and as science works out, the vaccines and the, and the other efforts to provide care for the sick and, and to keep people from dying and getting sick, as we do that, we have to register our wins. If we don't register those wins, we, we are going to burn out or we're going to get through this. And then people are going to be talking about the PTSD and trauma of this. I, I'm already worried. I'm concerned genuinely about the, the notion that this is going to cripple us psychologically. This is 
an amazing strength building process. I wouldn't wish it upon us or anybody, of course, but given that it's happening, we need to leverage it to come out of this stronger because the next thing, it's not going to be COVID-19. It might not even be a mutation of COVID-19. The next thing is going to be something we haven't even thought about yet. It's probably not going to be a virus. And we have to trust the human nervous system's ability to parse this. And this is why I'm grateful for things like this podcast, for social media, because communication is, is creating a lot of noise and a lot of clutter. The signal to noise is uh, arguably low these days. Very uh, low. But it's very low. low. But we are doing certain things right. And so I, I want to I wanna quickly summarize. I, I basically, you said three things, but I basically counted six things. So you, you're basically saying, um, you know, we've got this, this low grade kind of stress that's happening over and over and over again. We're getting stress fatigue. It's going to either burn us out, create PTSD, not give us um, ability or strength to make rational decisions. If we get, if we, if this continues too much longer, not, not the virus, but the stress, our stress response to it. So you have these three, maybe six solutions. I'll just summarize them. Panoramic vision, um, again, releases dopamine. Uh, sorry, to be clear, panoramic vision implements the calming response. It, it's, it's not related to dopamine. Dopamine is, is the pursuit of specific rewards and the registering, the subjective registering of particular rewards that allow you to push back through stress. And what is the calming response? The calming response is disengaging vigilance and attention and relaxing your nervous system. It means just teaching your, you got to periodically throughout the day, you have to do things to relax your nervous system. You can do that with your vision or your breathing. That's what that's about. Okay. And so then the next thing is, um, new light, you know, get light in the morning and light throughout the day, maybe light at sunset as well, but not after 10 PM and avoid screens. So on after 10 PM, the, uh, the next thing is, um, oh, and you also, uh, suggest, uh, maybe this was number three. Uh, this idea of uh, yoga nidra, which is maybe, and and you gave one exercise, which is breathe in, uh, oh no, inhale twice in a row and then exhale. And the idea is CO2 builds up when we're stressed and uh, when you release it, it activates. I'm trying to understand That's everything right. we've yeah, talked you, about. You're getting this exactly right. You, you, when you do the double inhale, long exhale, you remove more CO2 than you would normally you promote the calming response, literally a, the so-called parasympathetic nervous system. I don't use, I say calming instead of parasympathetic because anyway, it's, the wording gets a little bit, bit clunky, but, um, and, and by bringing in oxygen, you also reset, reset your level of alertness. So it, it brings your system into balance more or less. And this also activates your phrenic nerve, which quickly, what does, what does that trigger? So the phrenic nerve is allows conscious control of the diaphragm. Anytime you consciously control your breathing, in any way, even if you were to do, breathe quickly or breathe slowly or whatever, when you take conscious control of the diaphragm, you are, tra you are training the neural circuits to take conscious control of your breathing, which is important for stress management. But in addition to that, you are taking advantage of this mechanism whereby the body can tell the brain how to feel. So when you slow your breathing, you're, you're letting your body inform the brain how to calm down. Whereas just telling somebody, if you've ever seen if someone's freaking out and you say, calm down, it doesn't work, right? If you tell yourself, I'm freaking out, I, I need to calm down, I need to calm down. If anything, it just makes you more stressed. This is using physiology from the body to control the mind. Very hard to control the mind with thinking. Very easy to control the, the, the mind and the brain, right? Same thing with the body. 
Interesting. So, and then your number four was uh, essentially create little milestones uh, and congratulate yourselves on them. And this kind of, again, triggers dopamine. That's definitely dopamine release. And dopamine inoc- inoculates you against the sort of depleting effects of norepinephrine. Because as I point out, norepinephrine invokes, literally makes you want to quit. Eventually, if norepinephrine gets high, it makes you quit. You're like, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't take it anymore. Your statement at the beginning, I know, you know, after a good night's sleep, you might feel differently, but I'm leaving New York. Well, you need to feel really great about New York at some point soon, or, or that probably will happen, right? By the way, quitting is sometimes the correct response. Absolutely. Too. I'm, not, so I'm not calling it, you a quitter. Just, I, I want to be really clear. But the, but the notion no, no, but that I, you've had it, enough, that you've too much, you know? But, but it's interesting. It's, it's not like, neuroephrine is bad by itself. It's just when we have excess and then the quitting might be irrational. But if you're, if the other parts are balanced and you have, have a notion to quit something, then you might be okay. And I'm not even talking about what I was saying about New York city, but just in general, like it's good to go to the gym, but sometimes you're stressing yourself out to the point where maybe the neuroephrine shoots up and you feel like quitting, but that's a natural response because it feels like the body's under attack. Absolutely. I mean, nature didn't to, to stay with this theme of nature installed mechanisms. Um, nature didn't install a, a, a signal to stop that's related to excess norepinephrine because um, she's uh, cruel. She did this, Mother Nature did this because there comes a point where a nervous system needs to stop and replenish. And, right. and it knows when that point is. What I'm saying is keep norepinephrine at bay through the secretion of dopamine and you'll get a lot more mileage. You'll experience a lot more m- mental and physical mileage through any stressor of, uh, well, as long as you're able to invoke these mechanisms, right? And, and number five was um, uh, uh, try to experience gratitude or or do service to others. And this triggers oxytocin, which is on the flip side of another type of stress, which is triggered by the ta- taca- tachykinin, whatever. Yeah, suppresses tachykinin. Yeah, tachykinin. Yep. And, and that, and that stress is very particular to feeling isolated, the stress you have when, when you're feeling isolated. And then number six was, um, which I thought was really fascinating, kind of have intermittent stress. So figure out things to do that maybe are a little bit more challenging during the day, uh, intermittently, not all day long. And that kind of exercises all of these stress mechanisms under maybe more controlled situations. So, so that, that, boosts immunity. Yeah. And just to put a little science to that last one, um, there's a study that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that had people do a specific kind of breathing. I don't, I don't um, people are getting plenty of stress right now, so they don't need to do this breathing, which promotes the release of adrenaline or at, and norepinephrine. And they injected these people with E. coli. So they had two groups. One group meditated. One group did this um, respiration practice that essentially reproduced stress. And the group that meditated got fever, vomiting, sick. The people that had this sort of self-induced periodic stressor had minimal, if any, symptoms. It was remarkable. Holy shit. How much do you pay someone to get them injected with E. coli? Well, people who are desperate for money will be subjects in, in human ex, uh, experiments of that sort. There's sort of a culture around it, too, of people that do that kind of thing. But um, in our lab, by the way, if you come to our lab uh, once we uh, reopen, although... Uh, you know, and want to be a subject. We do pay our subjects. We don't do anything quite as uh, diabolical as that. But, but what that study really showed is that it, it was proof to what physiologists and neuroscientists have known for a long time, which is that 
the, the fibers of the so-called sympathetic nervous system, the ones that underlie stress, innervate the thymus and other, um, other structures, uh, glands in the body that produce uh, white blood cells, right? Um, and promote this immune response to fight whatever it is that's coming in. And this is why you're able to work for long periods of time and not get sick or take care of a newborn child and not get sick at least well enough to continue to take care of that child or study for finals. And then it was when you relaxed. So we're getting plenty of stress coming in. You don't need to self-induce stress right now, but trust that whatever stress you feel is also protective as long as you don't let it stay up all day long every day. So, so professor slash Dr. Andrew Huberman, professor at Stanford university and neuroscience, neurobiology, and so on there, there this has been fascinating kind of your, your happy chemicals, how you can use them in relation to the stress of coronavirus. And it was just an excellent kind of explanation of the neuroscience behind a lot of this self-help stuff and, and what might work in self-help, what might not. But I really want to do a part two because I have like, this basically led to more questions than, than I had before. Sure. So, uh, would you be up to scheduling a part two? Oh, absolutely. I am. Um, I should take this as an opportunity to say, uh, Thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, I, I'm a big fan of your work and your podcast, um, and that's re real. I, I, I listen, and as well, um, you know, for your questions. I mean, you're incredibly insightful questions, and you get right to the heart of the issues. And um, yeah, it would be wonderful. I would be, uh, you know, I'm very honored and gratified to have been on here today, and I, I would be delighted to come back on anytime you would invite me. Yeah, I have a whole list of questions. I'm very interested in in the, the role of of these almost the same topics in very fast learning as well as, um, I don't know, the, and also, you know, dealing with anxiety on a medical level and how to avoid, uh, the medical solutions to anxiety is very interesting to me as well. So look, let's, um, exchange some emails after this and we'll schedule hopefully maybe sometime next week or so, but it was really, it was really nice doing this podcast and I, I super appreciate it. Oh, well, I appreciate uh, the opportunity and thanks so much for having me on. I, I learned a lot from all your questions. Thanks again. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll, to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.